Hey, good morning. How are you all doing on this lovely Seattle morning? Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. I'll pray for us and we will dig into 2 Corinthians. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day and we are your people. We come to glorify your holy name. We, we pray to seek uh, your wondrous face. Uh, we come to know you deeper, Lord. We come to proclaim your excellencies. We come to, to be a people who would make your name known to the ends of the earth. And all of these things are done by your power and your might. And we sit as empty-handed people in and of ourselves, needing your power, needing your presence, Jesus, your movement through the power of the Spirit, that you would open our minds and you would open our hearts to the truth presented in your Scripture and that you would change us uh, by the power of your word and by the power of your grace and by the power of your mercy. I, I pray for just for me right now, Lord God, uh, that whatever is just of me would be forgotten, but whatever is of you would be lifted up high and that we would be people who see you, Jesus, uh, not because of my eloquence, but because of the beauty of your word uh, and the power of your spirit. Uh, so Jesus, we pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, if you'd go with me to 2 Corinthians, we'll be in chapter 1. Uh, we'll be picking up in verse 12. Uh, there's a lot going on in 2 Corinthians. And one of the things that's kind of playing in the background of this book uh, is that Paul is dealing with a church uh, where there's at least a group of people who are questioning uh, the power of his authority in the church. They're questioning whether or not he's a disciple. They're really questioning whether or not he has this apostolic mantle. Uh, they're questioning whether or not uh, he, he is who he says he is and has the authority to do what he's doing. Uh, and so it, one of the background conversations that's happening is he's helping them understand what it is to have a, a view centered in the gospel of Jesus and what it is to live in a world where there is suffering is also just the fact that there's folks in his own church, who, this church that he planted, who don't like him and are telling other people not to listen to him. That's rough. That is a bad day when the church that you plant has a whole group of people being like, don't listen to that guy. He's sending letters, just shred it. Delete. Put it in the, uh, the, the junk mail box. Uh, but, but what Paul does here in a number of ways and in a number of places, he defends his apostleship. And there's going to be other places he does this, like Corinthians 4, or 2 Corinthians 4, where he really talks about how he suffered for the gospel and he suffered for Christ. But here in chapter 1, his main focus is on the reality that he is a disciple of Jesus, that he is a person rooted in the gospel, and that he knows what he's saying when he's coming as an apostle. Now, now, this is important for us because, as we'll see from Paul, uh, to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, means we, we have our foot in two camps. And one is the, the life camp, and one is the, the teaching camp or the doctrine camp. Uh, that as a Christian, uh, it's not just that we live a life that looks like a Christian life, but that our life is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason we do Christian stuff, the reason we live as Christians, is because Jesus came to earth, lived the life we were supposed to live, died on a cross to cleanse us from our sins, rose from the dead, and made us His own. Because He is God, and He did these things, and He served us in these ways, and He stooped down in these ways, and He showered us with His grace and mercy. We live our whole lives in light of that reality. And that as disciples, we're working to bring our life tighter and tighter and tighter into this reality. 
We're seeking to, to shed motives like selfishness or self-centeredness or even I'm going to do these things so God will love me. I do these things because God has loved me and because Jesus has loved me. And as disciples were coming more and more into this reality, and as Paul begins to lay this out, he, he does this in a way where the, the marriage between life and doctrine are just intertwined. And he offers his, uh, this profile of himself as a disciple of Jesus as evidence of his trustworthiness and evidence of who he is. And so as we dig into it, what we're going to do uh, is we're going to, to look at it, we're going to take the text, and we're kind of going to walk through it because it's, it's all tangled up in there. And so we're going to kind of quickly walk through our, our paragraph or two here, and then we'll kind of pull some ideas out of it. But the, the big idea we're pulling out here is that this is the model of what it is to be a disciple. Now, you might be sitting in your seat saying, well, I'm not an apostle. Paul's the apostle, right? He's the super saint. Uh, Jesus shows up on the Damascus Road, blinds him, you know, gives him this very special commission to take, the, to, to take the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm not that guy. That's not me. Correct. Absolutely correct. You are not an apostle. You are not one of the twelve. Absolutely correct. However, however, just like with elders, only certain people are going to be called to be elders in the church. But if you look at what Paul says about elders, uh, they're, they're other-centered, they're not drunkards, they're, uh, they're faithful, they're, they're all these wonderful things, they're mature. That's stuff you want for everybody in a church. And, and what Paul says here, maybe not where he says uh, other things about being an apostle, but what he says here are things that I want for you and I want for myself and I want for every Christian person because really this is about having a profile of a mature follower of Jesus who's rooted in the gospel. So we'll take the text apart and we'll kind of look at some of these things that we're seeing here. Okay, so I'm in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. By the way, if you don't have a Bible and would like one, we have some on the table over there. If you don't own one, I beg you, it's a paperback. Take it with you, take it home, and read it. It is the power of God to save uh, through His Word. Uh, and, or if you just forgot yours, feel free. You know, wait a second, and we won't turn around and look at you when you go get it, and you can sit back down in your seat and open it. But, you know, feel free. Okay, chapter 1, verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. So the thing that I have to put on my resume, this is what Paul is saying, the thing that he's putting on his apostolic resume, first and foremost, is mature uh, believer in Jesus. The thing that he can offer up and say, this is what I'm boasting in. And this isn't a bragging, and I'll tell you why it's not a bragging. Uh, if you look in uh, the last part of that, that word, godly sincerity, or, or perhaps a better way to read this is sincerity and simplicity that comes from God. Just from the onset, he is leaning in on the grace of God to make him the man that he is. And can't we say that of ourselves? If you are a Christian person, you say, the reason I am standing here today is because God has been so gracious to me and His Son, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. So his boasting, and you see this, his boasting is not in what he has done. His boasting is not in his own spiritual accolades. His boasting is not in him. His boasting is in God. And that's where our boasting needs to be. Because just even the fact that you've read the Bible and understood it in any way, shape, or form is a gift. Uh, the fact that you've turned to Jesus is a gift. The fact that you're forgiven is a gift. Uh, Jesus didn't have to come into history. He chose to come into history. He didn't have to cross the gap that we made between us and him. He chose to cross the gap. It is a gift. For we do not... Oh, pardon me. That's last week's sermon. Verse 12. For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behave in a world with simplicity 
and godly sincerity or simplicity and sincerity that comes from God. Now, these two ideas, this word simplicity, um, doesn't mean uh, they're trying to keep the cookies on the bottom shelf forever. It doesn't mean that it's always, uh, you know, just the most basic, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible told me so, which is true, and we sing and we praise. Uh, Why we are here is a very simple truth. Jesus dies to save sinners and give them life. But what simplicity here means, this idea of simplicity is being, and again, with this, coupled with this idea of sincerity, is being straightforward. They, they don't need to complicate the gospel. There's complicated things in the gospel. We could talk at length about the incarnation of Jesus, who's fully God or fully human, or the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, or how God is operating in the world. But there are also very simple, straightforward parts of our life and lifestyle, Right? That he doesn't need to spin or manipulate or add or, or, or contort or make himself look better. I mean, honestly, we live in a time and a place in a society where we spend so much time trying to make ourselves look better than we actually know we are. I mean, this is what is propping up so much of social media, right? We live in a whole world where everyone's just trying to present something to the world that they're not or at least is in part, or is, or is fractured, or just trying to look better than we actually are, because honestly, we want to be accepted. Everybody wants to be accepted, right? You want to be liked. People like being liked. It's not fun not to be liked. But rooted in the gospel, rooted in who God is and what he's done, that's really unnecessary. Because when you're a disciple rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you realize this. Because Jesus died on a cross to pay the price from your sin, you're more forgiven, you're more loved, and you're more accepted in the person of Jesus than any, any human ability, right? This is outside of human ability, the, the love and acceptance that you experience in Christ as God looks through his son to you, as he looks at the accomplished work of his son on the cross and then to you. Uh, that, that you're more loved and more accepted that you can, than you can possibly imagine. And yeah, you want, you know, you're, you're a grown-up, right? You're, you're at the community college. You're at work. You're wherever. You still want to sit at the table with the kids who are sitting at the table. No one wants to eat lunch by themselves. Unless you're like me and you want to sit there and read. And you just pretend you put your headphones in and you, you don't even turn your iPad on. You just, you just read and pretend you can't hear people. But there's me being antisocial, right? But we do want to be accepted. We do want to be welcomed. And that's something that we remember as a church. When, when, when folks come in here, we want to make sure we're accepting people and welcoming people and saying hi to people and, and welcoming people into our community groups. You can get in a community group by filling a little card. We'll get you in one. But what's way better is when you have a community group, you say to somebody, say, hey, you, are you in a community group? Would you like to come to my house and eat rice and beans with us? Personal invitation is always more welcoming because it's more welcoming. Right, but he's straightforward. But it's an extension of, of the gospel reality. For our boast is this, that the testimony of our conscience, that we behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Now he's going to contrast this to this. Listen. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. So his, his, his simplicity and his sincerity is not because he read some book about how to be a convincing business person. It's not because he looked to the world and he read a book and said, well, if I do these three traits or these ten traits of a well-accepted person in Corinth, uh, then they will really, really love you. Uh, It's because he knows who Jesus is and he's living in this straightforward way because he knows how loved and accepted he is in God first. And so it's it's just flowing from his character and, and the character of Christ and what God's done in him. It's not in worldly wisdom. And supremely so toward you. Now remember, this is a church he planted. 
These are people he loves. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read. This is important. He doesn't have some secret message in here. There's not secret knowledge or secret wisdom. He's writing to people he loves a letter in a straightforward way. I mean, so often, sometimes you get that, that email from some, maybe that family member who calls, and they call and they ask, and they want something from you, but they don't actually say it, and you're on the phone with them, and you know they want you to come over, and they're inviting you over for dinner, but you got the feeling that your aunt actually wants you to move the couch from upstairs to downstairs, but you can't say it because your aunt, she's your aunt and you love her, uh, but you're reading between the lines. You're like, oh, man, chili, she wants something. I wonder what it is. He's not doing that. He's not saying one thing and meaning another thing. He's being straightforward. This is what we want for you, to know who Jesus is and know how to navigate a world. And yes, as we see in 2 Corinthians, a world with suffering, a world with pain, a world with hardship, and good things too. Um, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. By the way, you're only going to get out of this letter what you can get out of this letter. This is where I take a moment to remind you once again as a church, please read your Bible slowly. Please just drink this thing up. There's a lot here, and you're only going to get out of it what you're going to get out of it, right? Um, And I hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us. Just as you did partially understand us. So here's the background there. Paul's been writing letters back and forth with the Corinthians. We don't have the very first letter he wrote to Corinth. Uh, it's gone. It's somewhere else. So the, the, when you open your Bible, if you, if you go a little bit over from here we are in 2 Corinthians, it'll say 1 Corinthians. That's the one we have. Corinthians A, Corinthians B. We have those two. There was another letter he wrote that's gone. And the way we know that he wrote it is when we read 1 Corinthians, we see that he's interacting with a the letter they wrote back. And he said, well, you said this, and you said this, and you misunderstood me here. And in 1 Corinthians, he's correcting them. And it seems that for the most part, as we read 2 Corinthians, for the most part, they actually got the adjustment. There's still a, a, a group in the church somewhere who's saying, well, didn't Paul say this? And they're taking them out of context, and they're manipulating it, and, he's, and they're changing it. So he's kind of hinting at that, that if you do that, if you're taking Paul out of context, and you're making him say something he's not, you only understood it partially, not in full. That on the day, now listen to this, just as you partially understand us. He almost switches gears a couple of times in this section. Here's a big gear switch. That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. What happened there? I thought you were talking about understanding people. Like, Why are we talking about the return of Christ all of a sudden? He's coming back to this reality. He is affirming them as people who love Jesus and saying, you all love Jesus, I love Jesus, And his vision is, when Jesus comes to put everything back the way it's supposed to be, what he's going to do is sit there and say, this is an awesome church that loves Jesus. And they're going to say, this is the awesome dude who planted the church and he loves Jesus. They're not going to boast or, or, or sit there and say, well, you know, these Corinthians, they were so horrible to me this one time. Uh, he has this confidence in them, and he's, he's reminding them that this is who you are and this is who I am, and we're all going to the same place if we love Jesus, and that's to be with Jesus forever. He's, he's pulling them back to the truth. Let's stop with the bickering. Let's stop with the par, parting lines. Let's stop dividing. Come back to reality. We love Jesus. We love the Bible. We love each other. Let's not fight. Now, this doesn't mean we don't have disagreements in church, but there's a way we disagree with kindness and love and respect. 
Verse 15. Because I was sure of this. I was sure of our relationship. I'm sure of who you are and who I am, and and that I love you and you love me, Uh, even though he actually also knows there's some people who really, really, really don't like him in the church. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. So he's planted the church. He stayed there for a year. Uh, A beautiful thing Paul regards as one of his most successful ministries. As far as we can tell, the church is maybe 50 people, maybe 100 people, 200 people at the most. You know, uh, for us, I think that's encouraging in Seattle. You know, you go to Dallas, Texas, and like, you know, a small church is like 10,000 people or whatever happens there. Um, You know, I don't know what Paul would do with that, right? But Paul's saying, yeah, some people met Jesus and loved Jesus, and it was a success. You know, in Ephesus, they have a riot and and try and kill him. (laughs) You know, they didn't do that in Corinth. That's a different level of success than I think that sometimes we have in life. Success, no riot in Corinth. Great, that's a good day right? Uh, But he wants to come back to them so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way back to Macedonia, or pardon me, on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia. So his route, he wanted to swing by Corinth on the way to and from Macedonia as he went. Now he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. Stuff happens, right? Especially when you're an apostle and everybody's trying to kill you, right? Things, Things happen. Plans change. Now, that it seems that the party in the church that doesn't like Paul is saying, well, Paul said he was going to come. Paul said he was going to be here. He never showed up. He said he was going to come visit. He never came. He doesn't love this church. He doesn't love you guys. I'll go on. Uh, and to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Now, that word is, that's a big word vacillating. Um, one of the best ways to translate this word actually is like, it's kidding. You think I was kidding? You think it was a joke? You think I wasn't being serious? You think I was just saying it? Was it empty talk? Was I just saying it to say it? Uh, was I just trying to people please, trying to be nice? Oh yeah, I'll come visit you guys. It'll be great, but you don't really mean it, right? He's, he's, he's saying no. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans? Uh, uh, do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Meaning, again, he didn't mean it. Do I mean that I didn't mean it? No. Again, that simple, straightforward, uh, non-reading between the lines. He's, he's trying to encourage them of his uh, sincerity. Now, he does this switch here. It's almost awkward as you read it, but I'll read it nonetheless. Yes, yes, at the same time. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes, and no. The reality is, when you're following Jesus, sometimes you make plans, and sometimes those plans change. The reality is, when you're following Jesus, sometimes you have plans, and God has different plans for your life. And sometimes that interruption in our life even messes with us, or even messes with other people, right? And people say, well, why are you doing that? Why are you getting after that? Why are you moving there? Why are you doing this thing? Why are you doing that thing? Why this? Why that? Sometimes you say, well, it seems that this is what God is doing. This is where it's going. And sometimes your mom's like, you're crazy. Why would you do that? You say, I'm following Jesus. Here's where we go. Now, they're, they're picking on him, though, right? Well, why did you, you say you were going to do it if you weren't going to do it? I mean, this guy's been jailed. 
He's been had rocks thrown at him and dragged out. All these different things interrupt Paul's life, and, and sometimes in quite an abrupt way. But he's saying this, listen. So he changes his argument. So you want to talk about my little plans to come visit you, but let me tell you about a bigger plan. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who we proclaimed among you, mentions his traveling companions, Sylvanus and Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. God doesn't change his mind. He has a plan that he is working out. Paul wanted to come to the Corinthians, but, Paul, but God had a different plan. Now listen to this. And this is where you almost feel it's abrupt uh, in, in the language. There's almost this abrupt ship. Here we go. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. So Paul begins to appeal to something different than his little plans to come visit them in Corinth. He is now bringing in the whole of the scripture. That God made everything, this is his shorthand, the, all these yeses is his shorthand, right? That God made everything good. That's what we understand about reality. God made everything good, and human beings, Adam and Eve, broke it. And God made a promise to fix it. And you read the Old Testament, and it's promise after promise after promise after promise. And then you get to the birth of Jesus, and right before that time, you're like, where are the promises getting fulfilled? You, you made all these promises, God. Where's the yes? Enter Jesus. Enter Jesus, the one who came to do that Genesis 3 thing and put the world back the way it's supposed to be, who came to do the Isaiah thing to wipe the tears from every eye. Uh, John the Baptist even has the same thing, right? John the Baptist is sitting in prison and he sends his disciples out to find Jesus, who he thought had been Messiah, but he was sitting there saying, well, I'm the forerunner, I'm a prophet, I was proclaimed beforehand, I'm sitting here in Herod's jail and it doesn't look like it's going to go well for me here. He can see the writing on the wall. John the Baptist, who anoints Jesus, is sitting there in Herod's prison, and it doesn't look like it's going to go well for him. So he sends his disciples off to find Jesus and say, are you the one or should we look for another? Are you the Messiah or should we look for another? And Jesus says, go and tell, you what, go, go and tell them what you've seen. The blind see. He begins to listen. The, and the poor, and he caps it off with his promise from Isaiah, and the poor have the good news preached to them. The gospel has arrived. And if we're not careful, I think we can do this with our own faith and our own walk because it turns out, I know this is my experience, and knowing uh, many of you, I know this is your experience too. You meet Jesus, you follow Jesus, and you say, I'm, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, I'm going to love you, Jesus, and the stuff in the world all of a sudden begins to fall apart. Whether it's because you're following Jesus and all your relationships begin to crumble because the people you're in relationships with are not into Jesus. Or maybe it's just normal stuff in the world just starts falling apart. And you're like, but, but Jesus, you're God and I'm going to follow you. What, what's happening? What's happening? It was going better before I met you. It wasn't. It wasn't. That's not true. It's not true. Before you met Jesus, you were living in darkness. And now that you know him, you're living in light. Before you met Jesus, it was going poorly for you. Your life was going more off the rails. It was going so off the rails that as you're falling off the cliff, you're just putting on the gas and you don't even know it. 
And Jesus comes, snatches us out, and saves us. And we understand the long view of eternity, that Jesus is going to wipe the tears from your eyes, and Jesus is going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is on the move in your life. Because it's not about the things that you think it should be. And usually when he gets us through that storm, we realize that. You're like, Jesus, I, I, I come to love you, and the next day somebody steals my car. I thought you had my back. Well, it turns out your car was an idol and he needed to take it away from you. He needed to take it away from you so you realize that you don't need a car, you need Jesus. And we can go with anything in there. We could stick anything in that blank. That God in his grace and mercy, and we begin to see God actually sometimes takes things away from us because that's the thing that is our God in our life. And Jesus wants to be in the center of your life so that thing that is your idol gets removed from the center of your life so he can be back in the center. Now, Paul here is leaning on this truth that, that... that all the, the yeses of God, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. He's pointing to the grand view of history. Yes, Corinthians, I didn't get to come and see you from Macedonia. He keeps ending up in jail. All kinds of horrible things happen to him. They interrupt his plans. Getting hauled off to a Roman prison, yes, that will interrupt your plans, right? It is hard to go to Corinth when you're in Roman custody. That's the way it goes, Right? However, what he's saying is he's leaning in. So if the promises of God, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, what about those ones that aren't fulfilled yet? Maybe you don't feel like he's wiped all the tears from your eyes. Maybe you still have stuff in your life that's happening. Maybe you still have stuff that's going on. The good news is that Jesus is in the process of redeeming all things. Paul uses this language in in, uh, 1 Corinthians, right? That Right now we see Jesus dimly through a mirror, But when we see him face to face, it will be clear. And even this life that we live now, here, Paul's going to say, well, I I thought like a child and I acted like a child. This This is us getting ready for eternity. And when our sin's gone and we see Jesus face to face, we'll just understand so much more even about ourselves, I think. Not in a remorseful way, but even our own selfishness and self-centeredness and, and, and our drive for our own ambitions and whatever that thing might be. Uh, but when we're with him, we'll see it clearly. Paul has a, has a bigger view for this life for the Corinthians. Just like he said, when the Lord comes, I'm going to boast in you and you're going to boast in me. All those promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And sometimes the things of this world don't work out the way we think they should. If we were God. If we were running a show. And then I think when we come to a little maturity, we realize, thank you, Jesus. Your plans are better than my plans. Again and again and again and again. Your plans are better than my plans. Paul wanted to come to Macedonia. Better than that, God's bringing everything to fruition through his son, Jesus Christ, and he's going to restore the whole world. That's way better than him making it to Corinth. Let's keep going. Um, That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. We affirm what God has done. We affirm what God is doing. And that's in the sense of human history. And that's in the sense of our own lives. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I mean, we say this word, right? When you're done praying, you say amen. It means I agree. Uh, you know, sometimes if you have an old-timey Bible, it's going to say, verily, verily. It's going to be translated truly, truly. Sometimes it's translated straight up, amen. That's just the... The Greek word there, amen. That's how it sounds. That's how it looks. Amen. 
It's an agreement. So when you're praying with people and they pray for, for whatever and you, when you, when you join them in prayer by saying amen, when I, when I pray up here and ask that God would lead us and guide us in our time, we say amen and we're agreeing. What Paul's doing here is saying, yeah, I didn't get to come to Corinth, but God is doing something much bigger in history and that I agree with. That is my amen. Uh, utter our amen to God for his glory. Verse 21. And it is God, listen. Okay perfect example of why you need to read your Bible slowly. This is a verse for it. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So watch this. And it is God. Now sometimes God refers to God in totality. Sometimes it refers to the Father alone, sometimes it refers to Jesus, but here Paul clearly has in mind the Father. And it is God, so kind of insert the Father, who establishes us, that's Paul and his homies, uh, Silvanus and Timothy, with you in Christ. So we are established with you. I am established with you. We are established together as a people and has anointed us. So this is a church he has massive, massive, massive conflict with. Two letters worth of conflict. And he says, God, the Father, has put us together as a family, and he's doing this in his Son with us together. That we as a church are together. That's what it is to be a church. A church is the people of God together in a local way. A local expression of the people of God together. It's not you and it being an uh, individual uh, spectator sport, right? It is a team thing we do together. It is us together. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're just a community get-together. You're not a church. With you in Christ and has anointed us, all of us. And it's also, that means chosen us, set us aside, is what he's getting after there. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee for what? What is he guaranteeing here? Life. Someone's awake. Yay! Life. Life eternal. Life with God forever. That though right now you're in process and you might feel really, really, really in process. He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it in Christ. Not height nor depth nor powers or principalities can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is the truth of the gospel. If you love Jesus, he is yours and you are his forever and ever. Amen. And you can't outsend the cross. Now that doesn't mean we while out and that doesn't mean we do whatever we want to do. It means we're constantly trying to bring our life as disciples back in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we get out of whack, we want to get... Back in whack. That's missing something. Um, we, we want to come back together. We want to be realigned with God's will in our lives. We want to be realigned with the gospel. But we also know as we're working on that realignment, if you're working on that realignment because you love Jesus, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. You could be so unbelievably out of whack, but if you belong to Jesus, you're going to make it. And I have never, ever, ever known God, when someone reaches out and says, God, I want to change. Jesus, I love you and I messed up. I need some help and I'm going to get after you. And I'm not saying you don't even like 
fall off a few times on the way. But God is faithful to those people to bring them back in line, even when they come to him empty-handed, and know, and maybe in some honesty, know they can't do it on their own. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And that's a guarantee. You have the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. If you're a Christian, God is with you. I mean, this is so, such a big deal. This is the guarantee, right? No matter what you're, in, what you're in or where you're at or whatever you're dealing with, you have Jesus and he sent you his Spirit and God is with you. God is with you, no matter what. Okay. So as we've walked through this, I hope you've seen this, right? There's this mingling and this mixture of life and teaching, the gospel truth and the gospel lived out. Right? This, this shouldn't surprise us with Paul. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, Paul's instructing Timothy and he says, Timothy, watch your life and watch your doctrine. Watch how you live in response to the gospel, but watch that gospel you're living in response to. Uh, this shouldn't surprise us, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is one of the most important verses on discipleship in the Bible. And when Paul says this, he's not saying, imitate the way I look, imitate the way I dress, imitate the music I listen to, imitate my favorite burrito, imitate me in these things. He's saying, see the things that I'm doing where my life is coming in line with the gospel, do those things likewise. Do those things. Do, do the things, follow my habits, follow my behavior, love God's word, seek him in prayer, love others, believe the truth, defend the doctrine. These actions that flow from the truth of the gospel come in line with me as I'm just getting in line with Jesus. It's not get in line behind me because I'm in the front of the line. It's get in line with me as I get behind Jesus. Right? That's what we're after. That's what we're doing. That's at the core of discipleship. But likewise, he tells Timothy this. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and 2, he says, Timothy... Take what I entrusted to you and give it to faithful men who will entrust it to faithful men. That's four generations. Take the gospel truth that I'm giving to you, Timothy. Now you have it. Now you have the package. You take that package. You give it to somebody else who's going to be faithful to give it to somebody else. That's discipleship. That's discipleship. That's taking the truth of the gospel. But see that they're a dual concern, Right? Because you can have a life where you're sort of living as the nice person and doing nice things and you're opening the door for people because it's Seattle and that's what we do. And sometimes people say, you know, as a Christian, what you need to do is you need to live as a good person or people see that you're a good person and then they will, they will want to know what's going on in your life and then they'll ask you and then you can tell them. You can't find that in the Bible, by the way. That is not in the Bible. Likewise, likewise. St. Francis of Assisi is often quoted as saying, wherever you go, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. What's the problem with that quote? St. Francis of Assisi didn't say that, and he was an epic preacher. He was an epic preacher. He preached everywhere he went to everybody. He was known for like staying in front of places and shuff, apparently he shuffled around and like went back and forth, so he's kind of a man after my own heart, and would just preach these epic sermons on the cross of Christ. That's what he's known for in history. Not just being a nice person wherever he goes. This is Seattle. You're a nice person. People say, wait, what yoga studio do you go to? Or what Buddhist meditation center are you at? What's your secret? What seminar have you gone to? Right? And, and so much of our life, uh, living as sort of good people, involves making sure everybody thinks you're a good person. 
So are you being a good person because that's coming out of the intrinsic core of your being? Or so everyone say, man, that guy's so nice. I love that guy. Everybody, again, wants to be accepted. I mean, uh, we always come back to this. Karma is the civic religion of Seattle. And it seems other-centered. You're doing kind things. You're opening doors for people. You're tipping in the karma tip drawer and doing those things. But the reality is if in American karma, the idea is that you do those things so good things will come back to you. Right? It's not other-centered. It's not from the core of your being. It's so nice things will happen to you later. It's selfish. It's what Isaiah calls filthy rags. You're being nice to people. You're being kind to people. You're being a good person for some other purpose. Right? It's divorced from the doctrine, understanding, you know what? At my core, apart from Christ, I am messed up, and I am a sinner, and I need Jesus. But the thing is, is at the same time, we don't want to have doctrine, teaching, divorced from life. The Bible doesn't understand that either, for the record, for the record. Jesus says, you'll know that they are my disciples because their awesome ability to read systematic theology books and to write lengthy commentaries on books of the Bible. No, he doesn't, does he? You will know that they are my disciples from the way they have loved one another because we take care of each other as a response to how Jesus has taken care of us because we love others, because we've been loved so deeply and richly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can be nice to people. You don't wait for them to ask, though. You reach out the hand, and someone says, thank you for doing that. They say, well, let me tell you about Jesus, because he changed my life, and that's why I did that kind thing for you. He changed me. Uh, you can do good and preach the gospel together, Right? And our love for one another as a church is only as good as it is rooted in the gospel of Christ. Quite literally, only as good as it is rooted in response to Jesus. So, eight things I think we should pull out of this text. Eight things that I think shine out of this text. Uh, eight points that I think we should hear as sort of uh, in the gospel, a disciple lives blankety-blank, right? So in the gospel, disciple lives simply and sincerely. If, if you understand how accepted and loved you are in Jesus, you don't need to present yourself. We saw this in, uh, in verse 12, right? You don't need to present uh, uh, the version of you that's sort of pretend and fake so that people will like you. Now, that means you can just be you, but be you in Christ. This is not our, our society. You know, our society has this thing like, You've got you to love yourself before you can love others. And, you know, you just got to do whatever makes you happy. No, that's not what I'm saying, right? Sometimes whatever makes you happy ruins everybody else's life, right? It's not just that. But it's that in Christ, we don't need to present things differently. We can be straightforward. We can be straight talkers. We, we, we can, and we can live with the sincerity. And it's a sincerity that comes from God. It's a gift from God. As disciples, we don't need to trick people into the gospel. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, you've got to make the gospel a little more palatable. Yeah, don't be a jerk. Yes, don't be a jerk. But the gospel is the gospel, and what makes the gospel awesome is not that I try and dress it up or make it look different, but that I tell you that you are a sinner, that Jesus Christ died for sinners, and he died to make you right with God forever and ever and ever, and all you have to do is turn from your sin and turn to him and receive it, receive his grace and mercy. I don't dress that up. I'll tell you the truth. Because I know that if you hear that straight, in a straightforward way, you actually heard the truth. Not some half gospel, the whole gospel, the real gospel, 
the, the truth. Likewise, we do the same with ourselves. Uh, number two, uh, in the gospel, a disciple lives with eternity in mind. So Paul leans on this, right? He leans on this when he says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And he leans on this when he says, in that day, in verse uh, 13, uh, my boasting will be you and, and your boasting will be in me. When Jesus comes, this is what's going to happen. Discipleship, uh, a life lived coming more and more in line with the gospel. You know, even Paul on the Damascus Road doesn't just immediately go and start planting churches. Even Paul, Jesus shows up, blinds him, knocks him off his horse. Someone has to come and give him sight. Even that guy doesn't just start planting churches. What? What? He starts sharing the gospel right away, but he grows and he matures and he gets ready. Yeah, you might want to read the whole Bible in a day. And it might take you more than a day. It's kind of big. But that's okay. We just keep going. You might even have big plans. I'm going to read the Bible in, in a week. And then it takes longer than you thought. Maybe, there's, maybe you're reading slowly. Maybe you're listening and you're like, what, what is he talking about here? And you have to look it up. You have to ask somebody or, or, or meet with somebody and talk with somebody. It's fine. But just keep going and you have this big plan. I'm going to read my Bible in a year. And three days into January, something happens. And you don't pick it up, and it takes you a few days to get back in, and you're like, okay, now i got to catch up. and Just pick up your Bible and start reading again. It's God's Word, and read it. Just keep reading it. Maybe you're like, I want to I I just kick this sin. This thing's got to go. I want to be more patient. I want to be more kind. I want to be more this. I want to be more that. i got this big thing that's going to And some things, yeah, just stop it right now. Right? Some things are easy to say, yeah, don't ever do that again. Yeah, stop. Some things are harder to, to pin down even. And just even like, like being patient with people, being patient with strangers when you're driving your car and you sense it and you feel it and you're honking at people. You're, they're in my way and they cut me off and I honked again. And you turn to Jesus and you keep working on it. And he's bringing more and more and more in line with reality. And if, if you feel like you should be sanctified in a day, you know, talk to those of those who have been walking with Jesus for a decade, and we'll tell you, not there yet, but let me tell you about what he's done. And you find someone who's been walking with Jesus for two decades or a lifetime, and they say, yeah, I've been walking with Jesus my whole life, and he's changed me, and he's done these mighty works, and he's done all these things, but I'm not there yet. But I will be. I will be. He's either going to come ripping through the sky, or he's going to call me home, and I will be. And so I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and I'm going to keep bringing my life in line with Jesus and look at all the wonderful things he has done and look at all the ways he has changed me and look at all the stuff he's done. Uh, a disciple uh, lives in the gospel with eternity in view because we know he's coming. And we need to be a part with the bodies to be at home with the Lord. So I'm either going to him or he's coming for me, one or the other. Um, and we see this, right? Well, I'm going to boast in you, you're going to boast in me. Um, three. A disciple lives uh, in the gospel, a disciple lives for others. I mean, we've talked about it at great length, but, but so much of this, the point of this letter is to love other people because God loves us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He says that's what it is to be a leader in the church. To be a leader in the church is to lay down your life. He gives that example for pastors and Bible study leaders and community group leaders. There were people who laid down our lives for other people so they can follow Jesus, not the way the world does it, not for CEOs, not to lord it over people, but to give of our lives to help other people follow Jesus. That's what it is to lead in the church, for example. But that's for all of us. Again, this is one of those things that's for everybody. Everybody's called to give of your life to help other people follow Jesus. 
in the gospel. Because Jesus has given his life so that you might follow him. Uh, four, um, Paul allows God to overturn his plans. Obviously, the bigger scope is bigger than everything. Uh, five, um, Paul lives as a disciple in the gospel, carrying the message of the gospel. You're carriers of a message. You're carriers of the message of Jesus. And he says that. Uh, he, he leans on that in verse 18 and 19. He says, remember what I preached to you? Verse 6. I think this is where it gets really good. Uh, in the gospel, a disciple lives in the confidence of God. All the yeses. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. And we walk in that confidence as we know he's bringing us all to completion. Uh, number seven, in the gospel, a life lives dependent on God. We saw this up in the top and down at the bottom. Uh, I'll read this and then also uh, lives number eight. And I'll read this text and we'll close. Uh, in the gospel, the disciple lives a changed life by the power of God. So again, here we are in 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's both dependent and changed. I'm dependent on the fact that he's given me his spirit, but I'm also changed by God when he does it. Paul's leaning on this truth. This is what we have together. Uh, this is what it is to be a disciple. It's what it is to bring our life in line with God. That We're continuously coming to dependence on Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, this is the simple truth. We are all sinners and Jesus saves. No matter what you brought in with you, you don't have anything that can outsend the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't have anything bigger than the reality of Jesus. I, I don't care what last week looked like. I don't care what yesterday looked like. You cannot outsend the cross of Jesus Christ, his grace and mercy. Uh, being a Christian, uh, every other world system is one in which we do things to get up to God. You work hard so you can get to God. Uh, you do karma so good things will happen to you. But the gospel message is that God comes down to get to us. If you need that, that's the one true God. That, that is the only way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But it's the truth that God comes down to get to us, and we come to him with empty hands. And there's nothing you bring to him that he can't obliterate. There's no sin that he can't obliterate on the cross of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, and you're saying, that stuff sounds nice. A life in line with the gospel. But that's not really me. That's for somebody else. Wrong. Right? Wrong. Uh, wrong. This is for, for you and for us. What do you need to do to bring your life more and more in line with you? What do you have to do to turn from sin and turn to Jesus yourself? And, and if you're looking at this, and I'm not saying be boastful, and I'm not saying be arrogant, and I'm not saying you've got everything figured out, but if you're looking at this and you see your life and you say, you know what, by God's grace and mercy, he keeps bringing me more and more in line. And there's not that giant plank in my eye i got to pull out. What are you doing to help other people follow Jesus? If you have some maturity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, what, how are you going to give of yourself so other people can follow Jesus? How are you going to give of yourself to help other people who are not as in line come in line? And again, I'm not saying this in a prideful, boastful, or arrogant way. But if you've been walking with the Lord and he's moving in your life, help other people follow Jesus. That's what we live for. That is what it is to be a member of a church is to give your life and take responsibility for a church and have that church take responsibility for you and help each other follow Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. King Jesus, we do thank you. I thank you that we're here by your grace and by your mercy. 
I thank you that, that, that you have brought us together as a gift of grace to us. Uh, that it is a gift of grace when the church comes together. It is a gift of grace when the word is preached. It is a gift of grace when songs are sung. It is a gr- gift of grace when we, we take of communion together. It is a gift of grace that we get to be your people uh, here together and that we get to boast in one another in the coming of your day. Help us, Jesus, to bring our lives more in line with the gospel. Help us to, to, to take advantage of the means of grace you give us, the, the hearing of your word, the reading of your word, uh, prayer, and just, just the power of your gospel at work in our lives. Change us, Lord. Help us to see as you see and know as you know. And help us, Lord Jesus, to walk in the confidence to know that you are going to bring us home, that, that you are going to finish in us the good work that you began in us. And so, Jesus, we praise you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.